So this is an interview with Michael Sonnencher of King's College Cambridge to talk about his new book, which is published by Brill. And the title of the book is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, The Division of Labour, The Politics of the Imagination and the Concept of Federal Government. And the first question that I'm going to ask Mike is can you tell us what led you to write this book? Well, I could say Brexit, uh, but uh, it isn't really true because um, I was thinking about this uh, well before uh, 2016 and it arose really from thinking about uh, Rousseau and uh, thinking about some odd things that I'd found in the course of reading around Rousseau or reading Rousseau himself. And there was four of them, I think, that uh, formed the kind of background to what I have written and formed the kind of uh, organizing framework for what I've had to say. One or two of them I mentioned uh, in the beginning of the book. One is a remark by a 19th century historian of political thought by the name of um, David Ritchie, who wrote a book uh, called Natural Rights Theory, preceding um, Richard Tuck by um, a century or so. And in it, he says something to the effect that uh, Rousseau's real followers weren't to be found among the French Jacobins and certainly weren't uh, Robespierre and Saint-Just, but instead were Kant, Fichte, Hegel and 19th century Germans. And when I came across this rather a long time ago, I was rather intrigued and uh, thought, well, what is it about Rousseau that uh, interested uh, these Germans? So that was one question. And then also uh, quite a long time ago, I came across a footnote in uh, Leo Strauss's book about Hobbes, which was written in what, 1935, 36, in which uh, Strauss randomly says, um, it was no coincidence that the general will and aesthetics uh, happened at the same time. And this also intrigued me because I didn't immediately see what the connection between aesthetics and the general will might be. And so I began to think about, well, if you put the Germans and the aesthetics alongside Rousseau, what do you end up with? And that's part of the uh, set of concerns that I brought to bear. Uh, in the book. I mean, I don't, by and large, do methodology because I don't think that historians need to do methodology. Historians are supposed to be able to find interesting things and try to explain why the things that they've found are quite interesting and have some significance beyond the particular thing in itself. And that's sort of what I'm trying to do with the book. So there are these bits about Rousseau, which I think add up to a way of thinking, not just about Rousseau, but also what Rousseau uh, supplies, the thinking about, in particular, the nature of modern political societies, that uh, you can get out of these various things. So there are these two things, and then there are a couple of other things that um, also initially mystified or intrigued me about Rousseau. One was this uh, notion that I first came across in a letter from Benjamin Constant to Sieyès at the time of the coup d'état which brought Napoleon Bonaparte to power, in which Constant asked Sieyès, are you going to establish a system of 
graduated or gradated promotion. And I'd never come across this term at all in my life uh, and uh, had no idea what it meant. And it just lodged in my mind uh, at the time. I wondered what it was. And then I later came to see that it was a term that came from Rousseau. And it came in particular from Rousseau's uh, considerations on the government of Poland. And so there was quite a substantial interest in thinking about or trying to work out where what Rousseau called uh, promotion graduée, gradated promotion, fitted into the way in which Rousseau uh, more generally thought about the relationship between uh, government and sovereignty and the nature of a political society. And then there was another uh, also unusual sort of discovery or encounter that uh, I came across in the work of um, a rather weird early 19th century Catholic by the name of uh, the Baron Dextein. Nobody particularly has heard of Eckstein and possibly understandably. Uh, Eckstein established, uh, began publishing a periodical called Le Catholique uh, in the middle of the 1820s. And he, uh, in one or other of his articles, he was an unusual and uh, quite intelligent fellow. Uh, he was Jewish, uh, who converted to Catholicism, and he came from Denmark, and he ended up in France. And he was part of a kind of uh, liberal Catholic uh, circle, liberal in, in inverted commerce, perhaps, so close to people like uh, Montalembert and people like that. So the Catholic sort of third way, if you like, between uh, ultra-Montanism and uh, whatever the alternative to that Bossuet might be. So, and uh, in the course of writing, as he did, book reviews, uh, Eckstein never wrote a book, but he wrote huge and interesting book reviews, mainly published by himself. Um, he wrote a review of um, uh, various books to do with industry and industrialism, and <clears throat> in doing so, associated Rousseau with this concept of industrialism, which again, surprised me because Rousseau isn't usually associated with the um, notion of uh, industry and industrialism. So what I've been trying to do uh, with the book is to present Rousseau from the vantage point of these four ways into thinking about what Rousseau was up to, thinking about industrialism, thinking about uh, gradated promotion, thinking about the relationship between aesthetics and uh, the general will, and thinking about the relationship between Rousseau and well, the Germans, uh, Rousseau, um, Kant, Fichte, Hegel. So in some sort of sense, that's provided me with the, the broad framework. And um, then the idea was to try to show that if you put this framework or you put Rousseau into this framework, you end up with a rather interesting way of thinking about a political society, because it looks as if uh, this is a formula for a federal system of government, uh, one which Rousseau from time to time gestured towards, but uh, didn't particularly write very much about, although he wrote quite a lot about it in the course of writing his book about Poland, and to some also substantial degree in the course of writing his set of recommendations for the constitution of Corsica, which was something which he drafted and which nobody I think particularly knew about, uh, well, they must have known something about, but they weren't published uh, until 1869. They were found in the early 1820s. So nobody particularly knew this aspect of Rousseau during Rousseau's own lifetime. 
all in the immediate aftermath of his death. But uh, putting them together, you end up with a picture of a kind of federal Rousseau, which conforms to some of his own remarks, but also, and this has really been the point of what I've been trying to do, raises quite an interesting question mark against what we take a federal system of government to be. And what the real point of this, this book um, is, is to say we don't really know anything about what a federal system of government is. Uh, we think it's got something to do with the United States and assorted apparently federal systems because that's what they're called, Canada, Australia, and so on. But it's not terribly clear what it is that makes the United States or Canada or Australia different from, well, France or Germany or any other uh, modern republic. And part of the point of the book is to say, well, actually, uh, there isn't much of a difference at all. Uh, and um, if there isn't, then by, ex by extension, um, well, all this fuss about Brexit uh, has been a complete and utter waste of everybody's lives and times, and it will continue to be so for as long as this fuss lasts. But that's an ancillary, uh, but I think quite important uh, implication of what I've been up to, because the important thing is to try to think a little bit more fully and a little bit more carefully about, well, what is also called a modern republic or a bourgeois republic or a... Um, uh, liberal republic or a representative system, what it is, how it works, and the degree to which this thing called a federation and this thing called a modern state aren't as far apart as uh, they certainly have been said to be over the last 20 or 30 years in Britain. So that's really what I've been trying to do. But the, the object is to be historical and to try to uh, show how the history feeds to some degree into thinking about uh, the politics uh, more recently, but to keep the history, well, as it should be, evidence-based and uh, organized. So that, that's what the book is about. And uh, it's, in that sort of sense, a book um, which is really about Rousseau and modern politics and the degree to which an awful lot more of modern politics is to be found in Rousseau. And more substantively, which is the last part of my book, more substantively, that quite a lot, so people once thought uh, in Germany in the 19th century, of Rousseau fed quite directly into the distinction that became current in the early 19th century in Germany with the work of Hegel, the distinction between uh, ordinary people, civil society, and the state. So that instead of thinking of political societies of consisting of two bits, us and the state, there were three. There was us, the various arrangements, organizations, institutions in which we live most of our lives and conduct most of our ordinary economic and social activities, civil society, and the state. And I came across quite late in uh, the work that I was doing, the work of this early 20th century uh, German legal theorist uh, called Georg Jelinek, and found that uh, he had some very, very interesting things to say about the relationship between Rousseau and Hegel, and by extension, Rousseau, Hegel, and modern political societies, in which the relationship between uh, civil society and the state was, as Jelinek described it, using Rousseau, 
and using bits and pieces of Rousseau's writings quite uh, in quite a lot of detail uh, to show that the relationship was um, one in which the law played a rather central part, but did so in two quite interesting and quite different ways, one in a positive sort of sense, in the sense of private law, and another in a more negative sense, in the sense of public law, and the two complemented one another. And that fits Rousseau's distinction between the general will and the will of all, and fits Hegel's distinction between civil society and the state quite well. And so uh, it's provided a kind of, I hope, fairly fresh way of beginning to get more into the history of 19th and early 20th century political thought, and by extension, to get a little bit further into how we think about uh, the nature of modern political societies. I hope that answers the question, or answers well, all of the questions. It, it answers uh, all of the questions, and, and uh, there were uh, uh, five, six, seven of them. But the only one, the only one that um, uh, the, I suppose, in some ways you have answered it. But the question of how it fits with your previous work, how far you see what you're now doing to be a continuation of, you know, the story of Sonculot, for example, uh, or whether this is this has been a departure, a new departure? Um, I think it fits uh, in one sense uh, with the kind of things that I've always had in mind in doing what I do, which is that the thing that I think is interesting in doing the history of political thought or in doing history is in thinking about how people deal with difficulties and impossible situations in which you are caught between a rock and a hard place and it's not clear which way uh, is the appropriate way to go? How do you deal with uh, uh, this kind of uh, dead-end dilemma, what have you? Um, I began the most, well, you know, I've been doing these kinds of things for quite a long time, but the book I did about uh, uh, the French Revolution and political thought before the deluge is about this question to, uh, related to public debt. Public debts are good, uh, in most respects, but in other respects, they're bad. And the difficulty is to decide whether or not you want the good side and you can keep out the bad side or vice versa. The same kind of thing uh, applies to popular involvement in politics. Uh, you know, you can't have politics without popular involvement. But on the other hand, you probably wouldn't want to have politics with popular involvement. That's the kind of uh, difficulty and dilemma that has run, I hope, all the way through uh, the kind of things that... Uh, I've been interested in uh, all the way through. I come from a political background and uh, politics has, in that sense, not been a kind of subject that uh, is remote. Uh, it, it's something which has been present from as long as I've lived in some sense. And um, it's that kind of concern which um, I've always found uh, absorbing and worth talking about because I think it's worth thinking about and worth doing history for because there are lots and lots of states of affairs in which these kinds of difficulties and dilemmas do arise. So in that sort of sense, uh, I think there's a certain degree of compatibility between this interest in Rousseau and in this particular case, the interest in the relationship between states and reform 
which I presented in the book as something which I invented as the Fenelon problem, but is just a way of describing how uh, difficult it is to manage a process of reform, because reform um, calls on the one hand for power, but on the other hand, power can be abused. And these are the kinds of dilemmas that uh, are interesting. Very good. I've got another question, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, and it is, it's really to do with, I suppose, what we should call the late Istvan, and the late in the sense of the interests of Istvan's, what became his final years, because obviously, as you know better than anybody, uh, he too, he'd always been fascinated by Rousseau in the same way that you've always been fascinated by Rousseau and always worked on Rousseau, but then he was developing particular uh, angles. Obviously, the two of you were working together, really, because you talked all the time. And with regard, obviously, problems of population. But then we had the Carlyle lectures. And the reason for asking the question about how your work relates to the things he was doing in, in his final years is really because Istvan's Carlyle lectures, obviously, Istvan being a perfectionist, it meant that, uh, you know, it, it was a miracle that either obviously you and Baylor uh, uh, managed to get the Carlyle lectures published, uh, obviously in the version that he that he gave. Um, but there's there's definitely been in some of the reviews, it, it's that people haven't really got a sense of, of what he was trying to do. So the question for you now really is, is do you, are, are, do you feel that that with regard to what Istvan was doing, it's really part of a broader program that you both shared. Uh, and he was going in a certain direction, you were going in a certain direction, or or what? Well, I mean, it would be nice to think that what I've been doing uh, goes along with what he did. Um, I have no idea what he would think of it, and uh, I can guess, and probably this would not be a happy guess, but that's the way it was. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, it certainly, I hope, goes with the grain of the title of his book, Politics in Commercial Society. And I think, as I emphasized in the book, the in is the important part of that uh, phrase. Uh, and how you think about uh, politics under conditions of economic and social interdependence and the degree to which uh, it's rather hard to see how uh, there can be all that much room for manoeuvre uh, in, in these kinds of conditions. So, yeah, uh, it was in, in that respect uh, written in the knowledge that he'd done what he had done, that I had learned quite a lot from what he has done and uh, many, many conversations over a long period of time. Um, beyond that, I can't really say. Um, there was, we had a kind of, uh, recurrent conversation about what writing the history of political thought or the history of 19th and 20th century political thought or writing modern writing about modern politics from a, a sort of skeptical point of view might look like and it's it was his phrase uh, and that's always stayed with me and uh, I think it is um, a very helpful way of thinking about uh, how to deal with what came after the French Revolution, and to think about the kind of continuities, because that was also one of the, the things that I think we both shared, that uh, to think of the French Revolution as a kind of 
substantive turning point beyond the fact that it happened uh, meant that you lost sight of the questions and the concerns and the concepts that were being used before the French Revolution and uh, the need to think about how the continuities worked. So, you know, in that sort of sense, it worked with the kind of way in which Kozilek and people like that had also sort of, and Furet to some degree as well, uh, tried to put the French Revolution in a different kind of setting. But for us, it was, I suppose, a matter of trying to find a setting that wouldn't be as highly polarized as either Furet or Kozilek uh, had tended to make it, if that's of any help as an answer. Yes, I think it, I think it is. And the, the final question uh, is, what are you now working on? What are you going on to next? Um, well, I have a provisional title of a book called uh, The Romans, the Germans and the Moderns, uh, which is supposed to be um, about uh, the relationship between Roman law, uh, German conceptions of public and private law, and what happened to these different ways of thinking about the relationship between sovereignty and government in 19th century political thought. That's that's uh, what I'm trying to do. I've sort of tried to do it several times. So far, it hasn't worked. But um, uh, since I'm stuck at home, I can use the time for this purpose. Very good. So we'll uh, we'll call the interview to a halt. The only thing I've got to do now, Mike, Mm -hmm. is, to, is to say a huge thanks because that was that was terrific okay that's great fantastic okay. okay well thanks very much for taking the time and trouble richard no problem it's very nice to see you and you okay, okay. well keep well you too bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.